Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and today we're joined by Chelsea Congdon. She was a water resources specialist for the Environmental Defense Fund for 10 or, 10 or 11 years, the water program director for Public Council of the Rockies. She then went on to become a film and media producer, telling compelling stories. And more recently, she co-founded the Global Diversity Narrative Project. So just delighted to have Chelsea on the podcast today. Hey, Chelsea, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hi, Ted. Nice to hear from you. I'm great. Thank you very much. Good to, good to, good to see you. Good to hear your voice and uh, want to hear all about what you're doing. But, but let's, let's uh, I've already introduced you, uh, you know, uh, and you're, you're specialist in water and filmmaking and, and the narratives. Uh, so let's, let's just pause and go all the way back. Grew up where? You know, I grew up in Colorado. I'm a native and I was born and raised in Denver and spent most of my summers and uh, weekends in Aspen because my parents were people who were among the first to have a little house in Aspen way back in the late 1950s. So Came we up, would... did you were you skiing summer and winter or winter and summer? No, we were skiing in the winter and, you know, hiking and goofing around in the summer, but it was really it was sort of, it was part of our growing up. We didn't have our own school age friends were all in Denver, but you know, Aspen or the Roaring Fork Valley was really sort of embedded in my life from the very beginning. And yeah, made you, made you a natural, made you a naturalist right from the start. Made me a naturalist right from the start. Exactly. Now I was interested doing it. I was a little poking around. So you went back East for boarding school. I did. I think my father um, had the opinion that I would get a proper education there that might not be possible in the public school system in Denver. So off I was sent to um, Phillips Andover Academy and um, was there for a couple of years. And that was a big adventure for me because I really was kind of a hick. Yeah. Yeah. And there you were from Colorado. I mean, I grew up on the East Coast and we all went to prep school. But, you know, and there was just a few kids that were from, from Colorado and from Cal- fewer even that were from California. But but that must have been a great uh, a shaping, certainly a shaping experience. And then you came, then you went to Berkeley, right? You went to ERG, or not to ERG, you, you went to UC Berkeley as an undergraduate, right? I, I did. I, I got a great education in Andover and um, my father had strong ideas that I should stay East and keep doing things that he would do. And so I went to Berkeley <laughs> <laughs> to make sure we knew who was driving the bus. And I spent a couple of years at Berkeley and loved it as an undergraduate and really got to a point where I felt like it was a little bit too big for that stage of my education and um, didn't want to admit it, but I transferred back to Yale where my father would want me to go to school and I finished college there. Oh, you, oh, good for you. Well, good for him, right? And good yeah, for you. Now, look, I did, I made myself some tea before the podcast and this, you can't read it, but this is the UC Berkeley mug here. I can see it, yeah. That I did, I did, uh, you know, grab in your, in your honor. Uh, but, okay, so then, but then you went back to Berkeley for graduate school or was there I, anything in between that? Yeah, there was, you know, I had, I had finished at Yale and was really interested, I had gotten very interested in water resources and, Yale had offered to keep me on as a graduate student, but admitted that they didn't have anybody do, focusing on Western water. And I looked at University of Michigan, and then I thought I would just take a break. So I moved back to the West Coast and lived in 
the Bay Area and worked as an environmental consultant and learned about a program at Berkeley called Energy and Resources Group that a lot of, I think, your guests and our yep. mutual friends have attended and mm-hmm. thought that's the place for me because um, I really wanted to specialize in being a generalist. I wanted to be um, able to sort of integrate and find the intersections between um, technology and science and economics and policy and hydrology and not be a hydrologist or be a a water attorney. So um, the energy resources program was perfect for me. And in um, that approach, um, I made sure that I I applied to Energy Resources Group and I set off on a trip with a backpack around the world and I thought I'll come back if I get in. And I did. So I came back. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And then was EDF the next stop? EDF was the next stop. There were a couple of my colleagues at um, Energy and Resources Group who were working at the Environmental Defense Fund in Oakland. And I um, was thrilled to be able to spend 10 or 11 years there working on California water issues and trying to take some of the same tricks from the energy field about incentives and demand management and markets and turn that toward the you know turn that toward water and see where we could go so we did some pretty interesting work on the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers for uh, I was there for about a decade. I, we kept going for a long time. That's really interesting. Taking program designs from the energy world to the to the water world. Yeah, I think at the beginning people thought that that was going to be a pretty sort of hand and glove um, transfer. That it was going to be pretty easy to apply um, energy uh, fixes and energy uh, thinking to water. I think. I think we've all learned that it's it's not quite that simple. Water's really decentralized and water's very, you know, water's for fighting for. So yeah. um, tied up in all the water rights, it seems like. It seems water like very, rights. very frustrating with the, the old water rights that don't make sense anymore, but are, are in place. Exactly. I mean, we have kind of water policies and water rights that are 200 years old and infrastructure that's 100 years old and 21st century problems like population growth and climate change. And it's, it's actually a train wreck, but, and it was back then too. It today, there's no question, but. Yeah. I think, didn't they just come out with, wasn't there a brand new report coming out on the Colorado river that is down like a trillion gallons or some, you know, unfathomable number of gallons. Yeah. It's going to be, yes, they did. It's going to be new math. You know, they divided up that river in 1922 on the assumption that there were somewhere between 15 and 17 million acre feet of water to share between everybody. And the real number is about 11. So everybody's going to get a haircut. Yeah. Yeah. Now what, so you did that job with EDF um, based in California then I, I gather for 11 years or so. Mm-hmm, I and did. Then you, then you came back to Colorado. I did. I was 30 something and I kept talking about how I was a Colorado kid. And some friends of mine pointed out that in my 30s, if I was a Colorado kid, I should probably get back there. So I moved (laughs) to the Boulder, Colorado office of the Environmental Defense Fund and had the opportunity for, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years to work on uh, a project trying to link the Colorado River back to the Colorado River Delta. And sitting, seeing what it would take to get Mexico and the United States to sit down and look at some numbers and think about 
how to get creative about moving water across the border in a way that would keep wetlands and and wildlife down in the border region alive. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds it sounds very very challenging. It was very challenging. But is that then the public council of the Rockies? Was that a that was a, a subsequent position? That was a subsequent position. I had I had worked um, at the Environmental Defense Fund for a good long time, and finally, as much as I loved it, felt like water is a very slow thing to change, and mm-hmm. had the um, hubris to think that maybe you could change more hearts and minds if you told stories. So I became a documentary filmmaker with absolutely no experience in documentary filmmaking, but I (laughs) hooked up up with a couple of people who knew a lot and I spent about uh, 14 years making documentary films about mostly about wildlands, wilderness, conservation, um, uh, wildlife corridors, and telling stories about people, really inspiring people who had committed themselves to conservation and to wilderness in particular. And that was a lot of fun. And after my film partner is um, my husband. And after about 14 years, we realized that we would either make films together or stay married, but maybe not both. So I, (laughs) that's where Public Council of the Rockies came in. I um, started a consulting project in the Roaring Fork Valley where I live, working on local rivers, the Roaring Fork, the Crystal, um, Castle Creek, Maroon Creek, trying to figure out ways to protect in-stream flows and make people sort of more aware of where the gaps or the pinch points in those rivers are and what people could do as stakeholders to put water back in the river when it needed it most. Yeah, and so so the public council of the Rockies was really based up in the Roaring Fork Valley. Yes, that was that right. And yes. then the the Castle Creek story is is really I think a really interesting story. And as I understand it, there was an old hydro dam that was serving the city of Aspen that needed to be reconditioned or could be reconditioned. But you tell the story because it sounds like you're balancing renewable hydro generation with maintaining adequate stream flows and and, and other environmental aspects. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the sort of interdisciplinary dimensions of trying to think about how to keep rivers flowing is that people assume sort of automatically that hydro is good because hydro is not fossil fuel. It's an alternative energy and it's, you know, clean, but there's such, there's bad hydro. There's bad hydro that really screws up a river. And in this case, um, the city of Aspen already had a small um, diversion on Maroon Creek outside of Aspen for uh, to take water out of the creek and run it through a turbine and put it back in and generated some electricity. And in, in the drive to become more green and cut carbon, the carbon footprint of Aspen even more, Aspen proposed a project to pretty much dewater a seven mile stretch of the creek and take a great deal of the flows of the creek out, run through a bigger turbine, generate Mm -hmm. more electricity for Aspen and eventually put the water back in. And so ours was a project working with people from American rivers and, you know, wonderful, creative, passionate people to try to educate the public of Aspen that um, the, the amount of water that you took out of the river was going to dry it up for 
some long stretch and that that um, that Aspen needed to look for other green ways to produce energy without killing off this river at the same time. So it was a it was a fascinating project. And um, I think Aspen learned a lot. Uh, what, what happened at the end of the day? The project got canceled. The citizens, they decided to put it back to the citizens for a vote and the citizens voted it down. But now the that's fascinating. But the original diversion is is in place and is generating power, still, as I understand it, right? It's a small hydro diversion, and it still exists and does its job nicely. You know, and I'm, Aspen I, ended up buying a lot of wind, right? Instead, mm-hmm. I, there's a there's an author uh, Stephen Hawley who's going to be on the podcast. He's scheduled in the next few weeks. He's just come out with a Patagonia book all about dams, and. I've kind of thumbed through the book and I don't see any positive. He, 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 it seems like there's no positives about dams at all. And of course, I'm, I come from the power sector and I'm like, wait a second, I like hydro. I thought hydro generation was, was a good thing. That's part of the great, the great train wreck. We're looking at people talking about large dams. They're also talking about large dams at a time where rivers are more threatened by pressures for water diversions and um, climate change and drought. Um, I don't think there's so much a place for large hydropower dams, yeah. but I think that there are people experimenting, say, with run-of-the-river dams so that you can put a turbine in the river mm-hmm. and um, operate it in a way that the river continu- continues to flow, and it's that flow that generates hydropower. Um, people are putting hydropower in ditches around here. People put it in their gated pipe in their fields. So there are a lot of ways to generate hydro at different at a smaller scales but i think the the big dam hydro is probably on its way out right it's right. very destructive yeah going back to your your, your storytelling can you can you elaborate on a couple of the films that you made and the stories that you told and that that sort of illustrated this uh, sort of compelling storytelling yeah yeah, you know, the first film we made was called Subdivide and Conquer, a Modern Western. And it was about how, in the at least in the Western United States, which was then and is now the fastest growing part of the country ever, um, we have this sort of insatiable habit of sort of gobbling up the next town and building a subdivision and then having to build a shopping center to pay for it and laying in all the utilities. And whether you, if you're, to use local places in Colorado. If you're Telluride, you don't want to be Aspen. And if you're Aspen, you don't want to be Denver. And if you're Denver, you don't want to be somebody else. But they're all the same because of the way we incentivize growth. And so this was a film to sort of look at what the costs of that are from everything from air pollution, time people spend in their car, stress, um, chopping up landscapes and ruining habitat, um, pressures on water supply cost of course so it was it was a really fun film to make in a really western tradition we had cowboys riding horses through intersections and doing all kinds of crazy things but it was um it really unpacked the problems of sprawl and compared them to what was then the really hot topic of smart growth and how to build walkable transport sort of um focused communities and when we started it People said, what, you're making a movie about sprawl? That sounds like the most boring thing in the world. And that was my first reaction. But it was a fascinating project. And as luck would have it, when we finished that film in 2001, 
23 states had just passed a ballot initiative in a, in the November election to put a sales tax on um, in local communities to help create a fund to purchase open space and to protect landscapes. And so subdivide and conquer um, just kind of took off. It was, a, it had an exciting run. You know, I was sort of uh, chuckling because I had a band when I, I don't, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I had a band years ago when I was in New York called the Urban Sprawl. Oh, you're kidding. And it, we were on the suburbs of, you know, Long Island and uh, it was, it was the sprawl and, and nobody in the band knew what that meant at all. I mean, I had come from a land use planning background and everything, right, but right. It just seemed like a really cool name for a band. And so, and then we were, the nickname was the sprawl. So that, that word is near and dear to my heart. Um, we should yeah, have I, used your music. Darn. <laughs> I had, uh, I had Greg Postman on the show, on the podcast, your oh. county commissioner from Pitkin County, as you know, and just talking about how to balance, you know, this, you know, this insatiable drive for development and growth in like the Roaring Fork Valley with maintaining the quality of the valley, um, certainly maintaining it as, as a habitat even for wildlife. And I was going to ask you, we have, a, you know, the monastery that's up in Old Snowmass, up the road from the homes that we have there, mm -hmm. uh, is, is closing. And, and I know you've been very involved with local, you know, local caucus there and local politics there. What, what do you think is going to happen with that? I mean, here's, again, a large piece of land that I, I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of pressures to develop it one way or another. Yeah, you know, yes, I, I love spending time on that caucus neighborhood caucus board with your daughter, Sierra. Um, <laughs> the, I think that cooler minds will prevail and that 4,000 acre gem of a piece of land that is such fabulous habitat and has incredibly rich water rights and pasture, I think it will be largely conserved. There is tremendous pressure, um, as I understand it from the church, to have the monks uh, leave, which they are in the process of doing, and sell that acreage for the, to, to the highest bidder. I think um, this our neighborhood group has prevailed in appealing to the monks to sort of do a little soul searching and think about how they want this place to look in the long term and, and how there might be some very limited, um, carefully planned development out there that yields the kind of, uh, some kind of return that would satisfy the church and doesn't um, end up turning that into a golf course or a luxury development, which I think were the first things we were all hearing about. Right. So, Fingers crossed. You know, I guess just as sort of a theme of our conversation, how do you how do you handle just growth? I mean, you know, more and more water use, uh, land use. I mean, how do you handle this ever increasing population? And of course, you can't blame people for wanting to come to say paradise, the Roaring Fork Valley of Colorado. Yeah, you know, I think what we're all engaged in it's at some level and each in our own ways is is trying to first learn and then teach or communicate the possibilities around living here differently. I mean, until, until we get comfortable about talking about population control, which hasn't, doesn't seem to work, we really need to begin to imagine ourselves happy and thriving and fed and comfortable on this planet in a way that is not as um, fraught by tremendous pressures to um, develop and consume 
and throw yeah. away. And yeah. that's true whether you're in energy or water or land use. Um, and I, and I, th- I think we need, I think we can, I think we need to live here differently. Yeah. 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 When I came to LA to, to, to work, to be the director of energy efficiency for the city, I, I thought, Oh, I don't really want to do that. Um, but you know, I think I might have said this to you before I considered LA the land of conspicuous consumption. Mm-hmm. And so what greater place to be a director of energy efficiency and to try to move people away from that. But I agree with you. I think, I think this, this highly consumptive society is, is, is really at the issue and probably not population. In fact, I, there's some that say, you know, the collective intelligence, the more people we have, the better the intelligence we have, we'll be collectively better off, but we've got to get off of this, uh, this throughput society, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And I agree with you. I mean, I have, or at least I have heard too, that there, we, we could host, this planet could host lots of numbers of people if we were living here differently. And I think that, you know, the agency that we have um, as activists or scientists or social scientists, policymakers, is to try to change, you know, the, the rules, right, mm-hmm. with, with regulations or policies or try to change behavior with incentives. Um, but, and all of those things are really important, but at some level, I think we need to capture people's imagination about um, that that change and living in, in more balance with nature and with the rest of life on this earth is actually possible. And, right. and uh, better, and, and better, and better, a better quality of life is possible when we're more attuned to Earth's ecosystems, right? Thanks. I, yes, I think so. I think so. And we've gotten pretty far away from that. We've lived for, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years now with this um, mentality uh, that popped up that said we're somehow we're sort of separate and superior um, yeah. to nature, that we're outside of it, that we can manipulate it for our, our own means. And here we are in an, in an era that is now labeled the Anthropocene, which means we're the only game in town. And um, we need to change that story. We need to remember um, that half every other breath you take comes from phytoplankton in the ocean. And, um, and the acidifying ocean is not a good thing if you like breathing. And we need to get sort of back into a sense of um, kinship with the rest of life on this planet and get use all of our creativity and intelligence to figure out how are we going to live here without, um, without reckoning. And yeah. I think that's, I think that's possible. I mean, that's kind of why I get up every day. There are days that I think, mm, maybe not, <laughs> yeah. but uh, we got to give it a try. Well, and, and I think we all have to take it upon ourselves. I was thinking about myself as you were talking there. You know, I love woodworking and I have lots of tools. And when I buy a shiny new tool, I'm pretty fulfilled. You know, I, I, I'm part of that consumptive. I mean, I maybe I didn't even need that, right? So, I mean, I think we all have to kind of look at our own lives and just sort of realize where, we, where we're part of that, I guess I call it a treadmill of, of consumerism that's been sort of drilled into us. And of course, we have advertising and TV, everything making it everything amplifying all that mm-hmm. Let, let's shift a little bit and talk about the uh the global diversity narrative project we're back we're not too far off because we're still talking about storytelling i gather but yeah talk yeah. about that project well that's a project the global biodiversity narrative project started in 2019 when um maggie fox who you might know and i had some long conversations about how to use film 
um, and nature films to uh, help engage and inspire people to care about biodiversity and protecting life on this planet. And that led us into a really interesting discovery. She had, um, as you probably know, worked on the Climate Reality Project with Al Gore for a long time. And we were both just head scratching about how do you use all of these skills that we and our colleagues have in terms of policy making and science and storytelling and what whatnot to change people's behavior because you can have a climate accord and you can have now we have a global biodiversity, we have a global deal for nature that says we're going to protect 30% of the planet by 30, 30, 2030. That's a great idea. But we're missing something. We're missing the drive from the grassroots, from the ground of people to say, yeah, I want to live on a thriving planet. And I, and so our work in the Global Biodiversity Narrative Project is to look at the story or the narrative that we all live in, which is our cultural story. It's a story we share. It comes, it's not lectured at you. It's in ads, mm. it's in music, it's in, you know, in the newspaper, it's at the dinner conversation. It's, it's the sort of conditioning we have to see ourselves as somehow dominant in the web of life and, and, and able to live without the life support that we get from nature. And that mindset is behind the climate crisis. It's behind the biodiversity crisis. It's behind social justice and economic rights, crises around social justice and economic rights, because we see things as other. We see nature as other and therefore yeah. available for our use. And we see other people as other. They're not as good as we are or not as important as we are. And that um, mm. othering is impoverishing us and it's impoverishing the planet. So our project has been, let's take this story, this narrative that we humans have been living in for a while and figure out how would you begin to change it? Where would you start to seed new conversations and aspirations about living here differently? And how would you spread that through <laughs> cultures, the culture globally, not just in the United States, so that people could start to feel invited, engaged, excited about a future they, would, they could imagine that would be better on a thriving planet than the one we're headed to. And, and if you talk to human behavior scientists, they'll tell you that there are three things that change, make people change their behavior. The first one are, is sort of the enabling conditions. If you outlaw plastic bags in Rwanda, then there are no plastic bags in Rwanda and you've taken care of that for the most part. Another thing is an experience of awe that just you know leaves you back on your heels and changed forever. And the third one is a story a story told that you can see yourself in and imagine some sense of possibility and um, an agency. So we are trying to use story and the possibility that we could live in relationship in a right relationship with nature and each other um, as a way to try to bring real spirit and conviction to the the social movement that's focused on saving biodiversity on the planet, the social movement that's focused on climate change, because we really need people individually yeah. and as communities to engage in a way that um, 
they're Isn't not happening. Yeah. I love the mission intended to fuel the shift. Uh, yeah. great, great language. And then, but will the, what, what's the media? Will you be, will the story be a video or audio or written or all of the above? Or how do you get those stories out there? Well, what we're, th- what we're thinking, we're really in a, the, the sort of pre-launch phase of this work, but the, the, the focus groups we've done around the world, talking to people, young people, indigenous people, lots of um, really inspired, passionate conservationists have been that there's a, there, if you want to change a story in culture, you use culture. And the part of culture that inspires us the most is art. Right when you listen to music, when you see a play, when somebody's painted something or they're creating something with their hands, and so we are focusing on um, identifying and inviting um, artists from around the world who are already immersed in creating art that suggests the possibility of living in harmony with nature and each other, and bringing those people together to try to see what we could co- what they can co-create and look for ways to amplify that um, and share it more globally to bring. So you're carrying this mo- this message, this new story and culture with emotion, right? Yeah. Not data and fear and facts and just beating right. people over the head with one and a half degrees and a million yep. species because yeah. people, you're a deer in the headlights when that happens, that doesn't That's motivate right. anybody. So yeah, um, we're really, you know, we're, we're kind of, um, senior elder environmentalist. So I don't know if this is the last act, but it's informed by a lot of experience. And we're thinking, how do, how do you bring heart into this? And heart will come with art, we think. So we have a partner called the Global Youth Biodiversity Network, which is a group of um, hundreds of thousands of youth leaders around the world who have been focusing on biodiversity and how to um, uh, create a more just world for nature and people going forward. And they have networks all across the globe. And so we are going to, you asked about how do we amplify this and how do we share it? We're going to start with them because it's their future. Yeah, that sounds terrific. Sounds perfect. Yeah. Boy, you're you are so eloquent. I am very I am very impressed, and I'm I, oh. I totally agree that we need the emotional driver in or, in order to break through this logjam or this impasse that we're at. Where all of this scientific data in the world is, of course, it's important. We've got to have it, but it's the it's the it's this uh, it's the softer side of it of it all that I think is uh, really that, that's the tougher part to put it that way. It is a tougher part. Yeah. Great. Listen, great conversation. I do want to ask, I always ask people this question and everybody says, oh, I'm not in balance, but, but, uh, but you, you are an effective individual. You're eloquent. You've done a lot. You've done a lot. Your career is impressive. It's, it's, I wouldn't say you're at the end of your career by any stretch. Uh, I don't even think you need to even say final act. You got, I'm sure you have lots more acts, but how do you keep balance? How do you, how do you maintain? You got to be, you're taking care of that brain and that body. I know. Mm-hmm. Well, how do I? I think I maintain balance largely by staying in communication and kind of migrating toward people who are passionate and smart and creative and thinking outside the box a little bit. And that really keeps me going. I mean, all of the boards I've served on and the projects I've done and the yeah. crazy things I've tried to do have. Um, really had at the heart 
at their heart, people who are lit up. And there are a lot of people. Yeah. And that's always refreshing. Um, I also think that, um, I don't know if I'm an optimist, but I do seem to wake up every day with the sense of how can I help? What can I do instead mm -hmm. of, oh, this is so far gone, we might as well all just go to the beach and wait yeah. for the water to rise. Um, I spend a lot of time outdoors. Yeah. I spend a lot of time in nature. And um, that is uh, that is my church and my soul food. And so I suppose in a pinch, that's your answer. <laughs> it's a great answer. <laughs> oh, hey, listen, thanks so much for this conversation. It's been great talking to you. Likewise, Ted. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.